Take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. It was November 1st, the last time we were in Acts. By my my calculations, that was about three years ago. So, let me give you a little bit of a recap, reminder of where we're at in Acts. Um, Acts is the second volume of Luke's two-part work. The first was his gospel. And uh, Luke says at the beginning of Acts that the gospel that Luke wrote was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so the book of Acts is not about what happened after Jesus' work. Acts is about how Jesus continued his work from heaven through his disciples on earth to whom he sent the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Luke gives us the outline of the book of Acts. He, uh, he records how Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the whole book of Acts records the fulfillment of Jesus' words after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Jesus' disciples begin to bear witness in Jerusalem. And eventually, we'll see the gospel spread through Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. But the section that we've uh, been in, uh, that we're continuing in today, is about the disciples' witness in Jerusalem. Uh, And you may remember this slide uh, as we look at the witness in Jerusalem. Throughout Acts chapters 1 through uh, right at the beginning of chapter 8. Throughout this section that's focused on the witness in Jerusalem, Luke alternates between sections that focus internally at the life within that first church. And then externally as the witnesses engage their community with the gospel. And as the uh, church engages the community, uh, every time there's this external section, there are, are signs that validate the message of the gospel. There's a response by the people, and then there's an explanation uh, from the disciples of Jesus. And as each of these alternating sections roll on, more and more opposition to the gospel increases. At Pentecost, no opposition. But then, slowly but surely, there's more and more opposition. And the section that we're going to be in today, we're beginning the very last external section of this Jerusalem-focused part of Acts, and we will see the most opposition to the gospel that we have seen up until this point. This section of Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through chapter 8, verse 3, is primarily centered around Stephen, who is one of the seven men, you might recall from the beginning of chapter 6, that the apostles appointed to lead the ministry of distribution so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the portion we're going to look at today, the, the, scene, the story unfolds in three different sections. The first section that we're going to look at is how the opposition to Stephen began, then that leads to Stephen giving a speech before the Jewish council. It's the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. In response to Stephen's speech, he is ultimately put to death as the first Christian martyr. And his death begins a persecution so great that it forces the disciples of Jesus to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to 
the ends of the earth. So like I said, we'll look at Stephen's story over the next three weeks and three sermons. Today's sermon is called The Marks of a Witness. Next week we'll look at The Message of a Witness. And then finally, The Martyrdom of a Witness. Today, we'll look at the end of Acts chapter 6. So hope you found that passage. And uh, we'll read together starting in verse 8. And since these words are inspired by God and come with his authority, and uh, they are inerrant and they are sufficient, uh, let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Stephen was apparently making quite a splash at the synagogue. He was doing great wonders and signs. Something that only the apostles had been seeing doing up to this point. As we've already seen in Acts, the signs and wonders that were done at the hands of the disciples were given by God to validate the message of Jesus' witnesses. And even the opponents of Stephen understood this. They did not argue with Stephen about the signs and wonders. They disputed with him about his words, about his message. And because the signs and wonders were there, Stephen's message could not be ignored. Stephen was communicating his message, we're told, at the synagogue, uh, whereas the temple was sort of the hub of where where there was sacrifice and worship. Uh, The synagogue, uh, there were multiple synagogues, and the synagogue was a place for studying, teaching, discussing the scriptures. And this particular synagogue, uh, Luke tells us, was made up of several different, or people from several different groups, uh, and they were all uh, Hellenists. You might remember at the beginning of Acts chapter 6 that Hellenists were Jews that had been dispersed to other nations. They were Greek speakers. And Stephen himself uh, was a Hellenist. Uh, so this was uh, the, the people who were gathered there studying the word, talking about the truth of God. And as Stephen communicated his message within the synagogue, Stephen's opponents disputed with him. But they couldn't win a debate with Stephen. So, instead, they started spreading rumors about Stephen. 
They caused a disruption among the people uh, that led to the Jewish council, the, the head of the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin as it's called, uh, the council arrested Stephen. The opponents even set up false witnesses to make accusations against Stephen before the council. And all of that leads to uh, ultimately chapter 7, verse 1, where the high priest demands an explanation from Stephen. And that gives Stephen a chance to speak the truth to the council, the truth not only about Jesus, but also the truth about them and the ways that they rejected Jesus. And we'll hear Stephen's response next week. But uh, this morning, I want to take a closer look at, first of all, the accusations made against Stephen, and then at the accused himself, Stephen, and the ways that he was marked by Christ-likeness. So we're going to look at the accusations and the accused. First of all, the accusations. So in verse 11, Luke tells us that Stephen's Hellenist opponents secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So when it comes to the accusations, their beef with Stephen was uh, supposedly what he said about Moses and God. Moses and God. Now look at verse 13. The false witnesses said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So in verse 11, it was Moses and God. In verse 13, it's the holy place, uh, the temple, and the law. Then finally, look at verse 14. Verse 14 begins with the word for or because. They claimed that Stephen was speaking words against the temple and the law for this reason. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So because they claimed... Stephen said that Jesus would destroy this place. They claimed that Stephen spoke against the temple. Because they heard Stephen say Jesus would change their customs, they claimed Stephen spoke against the law. As we look at these three statements, it becomes clear that there were really two accusations. The first accusation had to do with God and the holy place and the temple. And these are all the same accusation. In in each of these three instances, it's all the same accusation. How so? Well, the temple was sacred because that was the place where God's presence was manifested among his people. So to the Jewish ear, to speak a word against the temple was to speak a word against God. That's why they say in verse 11 that Stephen was speaking against God. God, Uh, but specifically they were accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple. The second accusation had to do with Moses, the law, the the customs. And as this um, unfolds, it seems that most likely what they were focused on was not the actual law of Moses, the, the first five books of the Old Testament that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Most likely... It seems that they were focused on the traditions that had been passed down over the years as scribes had interpreted the law. Uh, Bible scholar 
I. Howard Marshall said this about that word customs in verse 14. The customs are no doubt the oral traditions giving the scribal interpretation of the law. These were regarded as stemming from Moses, just as much as the written law was. An attack on the oral law was thus tantamount to an attack on the whole law. So, like the Jews considered a word spoken against the temple to be a word spoken against God himself, In the same way, they considered a word spoken against their customs to be a word spoken against God's word. And that's why in verse 13, they say that Stephen was speaking against the law. So, the two accusations that they made against Stephen were that he spoke against the temple and that he spoke against their customs. Now, we don't know what Stephen actually said. And the one thing that Luke tells us about these witnesses is that they were false. But it seems that the accusations were not totally false, but instead the opponents were twisting Stephen's words. That he said something like this and they were twisting it to make it worse. After all, the one who Stephen was following, Jesus Christ, said things very similar to this. Things that offended the Jews who loved the temple. Things that offended the Jews who loved their customs. In fact, in Mark 14, 58, Mark records how when Jesus himself was arrested and brought before the council, they brought false witnesses against him, claiming, uh, we heard him say, meaning Jesus, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Uh, The truth is, though, that Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He predicted that the temple would be destroyed, but he never said that he himself would destroy it. And then John will even go on to say that when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. He was not referring to the building at all. He was referring to his body. He was referring to the resurrection. And then as far as the customs and traditions of the scribes, Jesus did speak against those. One of the most notable places was the Sermon on the Mount. Six times in that sermon, Jesus uses phrases, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And in those sayings, Jesus was not refuting the Spirit-inspired scriptures. He was correcting wrong interpretations of the Old Testament that had been passed down through the years by scribes and the form of traditions and customs. For example, Matthew 5, 43 to 44, Jesus said, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now God really did say, love your neighbor. But nowhere in the law did God ever say, hate your enemy. This was a misinterpretation of the law that had developed over the years through the traditions and the customs handed down by the scribes, but it had become so interwoven with the actual law that the Jews considered it to be from Moses himself. Next week, we'll hear how Stephen responds to these accusations, and the temple and Moses are going to be key themes in Stephen's speech. But for now, let's consider just how to apply what we've seen so far. 
as Stephen's opponents accused him against uh, accused him of speaking against the temple and against their customs Stephen's opponents exposed their idolatry when it came to the temple they took an object used in worship the temple and they elevated it to a place as high as the object of worship god himself so much so that they even spoke of stephen speaking against this holy place as if you can blaspheme a building when it came to the customs they took the traditions of men and they elevated them to a place as high as the word of god and their customs were so mixed into their understanding of the law that they couldn't even distinguish between the two of them So let's ask a couple of questions of ourselves. Do you treat objects meant to be used in the worship of God as if they were the object of worship? Let me ask that again. Do you treat objects meant to be used in the worship of God as if they were the object of worship, God himself? Now, I'm not talking about you know, bowing down outside the worship center or, you know, kissing the big rock out front. But the truth is, we can value things too much. You know, one good example of of this not happening um, here at Rocky Point happened before my time. As a candidate, I was being told about how this congregation uh, went through the process of selling the College Life Center. You know, that was a building where the Word of God was taught, where God was worshipped, where lives were changed, where relationships were forged, and it would have been very, very easy to value that building too much. But the congregation here recognized that um, the best thing to do in the worship of God The God that was worshipped within the CLC, the best thing to do to worship that God was to sell that building and use those funds for more strategic purposes. You recognized that it was the God who was worshipped in that building who was more important than the building itself. But, you know, we don't have to limit this to just buildings like the temple or like the CLC. Uh, We do this with all sorts of things. Just think in the context of church worship Uh, we can value a style of music too much we use certain styles of music as a as an object so to speak in worship Uh, but we can value it too much and say things like you know i've i've only ever really felt it in worship when we're singing modern songs and so if we're not singing songs written in this millennium then i i just i can't really worship or we can value a ministry too much You know, this program has been used by God for 40 years, and so why would we ever think about changing it? And those are just examples. But we have to ask ourselves, whether it's in the context of church or our whole life that's meant to be used in the worship of God, which do we love more? The things we use to worship God or God himself, the object of our worship? Let's ask another question. Do you elevate the traditions of men to the same level as the word of God? 
Do you elevate the traditions of men to the same level as the word of God? Like the Jews in Stephen's day, if we're not careful, we will let human ideas get intermingled with God's word and begin to think that our traditions are from God himself. We might think that certain customs when it comes to gathered worship that are not prescribed in scripture, it's just something that we've always done or I grew up doing, that we we don't worship until we do those things. Or maybe it's a, a celebration of an occasion You know, we celebrate Christmas because of the birth of Christ. We celebrate Easter because of the resurrection of Christ. But there's all sort of holidays and things within the American calendar that churches tend to start to incorporate into their calendar and believe that we need to do that because we've always done it and because if we're a faithful church, we're going to do those things when it's not actually in the Bible itself. Look out for words like, we've always done it this way. Look out for words like, well, I grew up doing this. Look out for words like, I've always seen this happen. It might just be that that exposes that we've taken traditions, customs, and elevated them to the place that only belongs to the word of God. And listen, traditions are not wrong. Good traditions can serve us as we worship God. But when we mix them up together with the word of God, to such a degree that we can't tell the difference between the two, we are in trouble. So may we honor God by valuing him more than things, and may we value God's word more than traditions. Okay, so we've considered the accusations made against Stephen, but now let's move on to Stephen himself, the accused. The accused. What marked Stephen? Well, verse 8, the first thing that Luke tells us about Stephen is that he was full of grace and power. And we should probably take these two words together to be one idea. The word grace describes a a gift from God. And so we see, see here that Stephen was exercising power that was given to him by God. And we see that power demonstrated in the rest of the verse. Uh, He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen had this power to do wonders and signs, but the power was not coming from him. It was a gift from God. It was God's grace at work in power to do these things. And it demonstrated that Jesus was with him. Just as the wonders and signs that Jesus did demonstrated that God the Father was with him. Uh, If you flip back just a couple pages to Acts 2 and verse 22, Peter on the day of Pentecost says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Stephen One of the things that marked Stephen was that he demonstrated power that comes only from God. Then in verse 10, after Luke tells us about the Hellenists trying to dispute Stephen, he says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
back in first, uh, excuse me, back in verse three, Stephen, along with the rest of the seven, were described as being full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And like with that phrase, grace and power, we should probably understand this as well, uh, the wisdom and the Spirit, to be one idea. Uh, if you've got a NIV Bible, it, it's even translated as the wisdom the Spirit gave him. Like Stephen demonstrated power that can come only from God, Stephen also spoke words that could only come from God. Specifically, from God the Holy Spirit. The words were coming out of Stephen's mouth. And these words were so wise, so logical, so clearly true, that they were undeniable. They were irrefutable. They couldn't, the opponents could not withstand this wisdom. As they tried to dispute him, as they tried to push back against what Stephen was saying, they could not withstand his wisdom because his wisdom did not come from himself. It came from the Holy Spirit given to him by Jesus. It came from God himself. And in this moment, as Stephen was speaking this wisdom that came from God, Jesus was fulfilling a promise that he had made to his disciples. In Luke 21, verses 12 through 15, Jesus said this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For, listen to this, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Then in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus promised that his witnesses would not have to rely on their own wisdom. He would give them words to speak from the Holy Spirit. And in this moment here in Acts 6, Jesus kept his promises. So Stephen, what marked him, he demonstrated power that comes only from God. Stephen spoke words that come only from God. How is it that he's able to do this? Look at verse 15. After the council heard the accusations from the false witnesses, they looked at Stephen. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does the face of an angel look like? I, I take it probably none of us know from firsthand experience if you do uh we, we probably want to hear about it so come you tell somebody but um according to scripture what is an angel what does the face of an angel look like well in a word bright an angel's face shines 
but it does not shine like the sun, which is the source of its own light. Only God himself shines like that. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described as having a face like the sun shining in full strength. Angels don't shine like that. Angels shine like the moon, reflecting glory that comes not from themselves, but from outside of themselves. They don't They are not the source of their own glory. They reflect the glory that can only come from God. Uh, For example, take a verse that we read on Christmas Eve, and you probably heard multiple times through the Advent season and have heard uh, Christmases over the year. Luke 2, 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, Now catch that. An angel appeared, but the glory of the Lord shown around them the angel appeared in glory but the glory didn't come from the angel the angel shined because the angel had been in the glorious presence of god so what does it mean that stephen's face looked like the face of an angel well it means that he was demonstrating not his own glory but the glory of god it means that it was clear He had been with God. And in that moment, God was with him. You know, there was a famous person in the Old Testament whose face shined with glory after being in the presence of God. Remember who it was? Moses. Exodus 34, 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now catch this. Who did Stephen's opponents say that Stephen was blaspheming besides God? Moses. And what was the most significant thing in the temple? The presence of God. Yet Luke makes it clear it was Stephen who looked like Moses. Not the council, not the Hellenists. It was Stephen who demonstrated he had been with God and God was with him. Stephen knew the presence of God. And it'll become even more clear next week as we look at Stephen's speech that Stephen is much more in line with Moses than the council or the rest of the Jews or the Hellenists who claim to be so worked up about Moses. But for now, let's just summarize Luke's description of Stephen, the accused, this way. Stephen demonstrated power that comes only from God, and Stephen spoke words that come only from God because Stephen had been in the presence of God. So how can we, as witnesses, be marked by the same things that marked Stephen as a witness? First, consider power that comes only from God. How would that be demonstrated in our lives? Should we expect to be able to perform wonders and signs like Stephen did? I mean, if you're not, should you, like, feel really bad about yourself? Like, oh, man, I must not be a good Christian because I don't have, you know, I don't have these superpowers to do signs and wonders like Stephen did. No, no, those, those wonders and signs that were 
for Stephen, the evidence of the power and grace of God that was upon him, uh, those wonders and signs throughout the New Testament are tied to the ministry of revelation, the revealing of God's word. They're not something that's promised to all Christians for all times. But God's power is promised to all Christians for all times. God's grace is promised to all Christians for all times. In, in Acts 1.8, according to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came upon us, we received power to be his witnesses. So how does that power manifest itself? What do we do as witnesses that makes others look at us and say, the only explanation for that is the grace of God? Well, let me just give one example. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul prays that his readers would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. For all endurance and patience with joy. We demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit by bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit attests to the truth of the gospel. As witnesses, it's very important that we remember words are essential, but words are not enough. Speaking the truth, if it's not the truth in love, is not enough. In fact, if our actions are ungodly, we place a stumbling block in front of the gospel. But when we, as, as Paul prays in Colossians 1, when we have endurance, when we endure trials and persecution in a way that goes beyond human ability, people may just... Listen to us. We, when we demonstrate patience with our fellow sinners that cannot be explained by our own power, people may just wonder what's different about us. When we have joy in the face of suffering that no human is capable of on their own, we demonstrate that we are full, not of ourselves, but full of grace and power, something that cannot be explained by ourselves because it did not come from ourselves, that it's not I, but Christ in me. We demonstrate the power that can only come from God by bearing the fruit that can only come from God. What about the words that come only from God, like Stephen spoke? How do we, as witnesses, speak the words that come only from God? Does Stephen's example teach us that we should just wing it? Hope the Holy Spirit does his thing? No. Well, think about it. Where, where do we go to find words that can only come from God? Where? The Bible, right? The, the Holy Spirit that was at work in Stephen to give him wisdom to speak is the Spirit who, at the time that Stephen had lived, had inspired the 39 books of the Old Testament, and after Stephen died, he would inspire the 27 books of the New Testament. 
we will only ever demonstrate the kind of wisdom that Stephen demonstrated if we, like Stephen, rely not on words that come from ourselves, but that re- if the only way we will demonstrate that wisdom is if we rely on words that come only from God. And the place where we go to find words that come only from God is the Bible. So what does that mean for us as witnesses? Well, we need to arm ourselves with the word of God. We don't need lofty arguments. We don't need strategies and plans. We don't need human wisdom. We don't need traditions and customs. We need scripture. We need the words that come from the Holy Spirit. The wisdom that can come from only God himself. May we begin fewer sentences with, well, I heard once, or, well, in my opinion, or, I believe, or, well, I've always been taught. And may we begin more sentences with, Jesus said in Matthew, or the Bible says, or this book, chapter, and verse says. Because the kind of wisdom that opponents cannot withstand comes only from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit breathed out the scriptures. So may we depend on the Holy Spirit by depending on the Holy Bible. As witnesses, we want to demonstrate power that comes only from God. We want to speak words that come only from God. But we need to recognize that as it was for Stephen, this can only come from the presence of God in us. The only way that you can be effective, the only way you can be a witness of Jesus, is if you have witnessed Jesus. And just like the the power comes not from us or from God, and the words come not from us, but from God, experiencing the presence of God in us, that is something that is not up to our efforts or our work or our ability. It's not up to us. Paul says in Galatians 2, 20 and verse 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, and here's the key, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We can experience the presence of Christ in us only through faith in him. He gave himself for us, Paul says, as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. The sins that caused a barrier between us and God and caused us to not be able to experience the presence of God. Jesus took care of the barrier so we wouldn't have to. 
he offers to us his perfect righteousness. So we ourselves can be a holy temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. Not because we have cleaned ourselves up, not because we have made ourselves the kind of place that God can dwell in, but because Jesus gives us his righteousness. You and I can have our old selves crucified with Christ, and you, can, you and I can experience the very life of Christ in us, dwelling in us, day after day, 24-7, simply by trusting in Jesus to make us a temple fit for God himself. So may we not be like Stephen's accusers, who made too much of objects, traditions. Instead, may we bear the marks of a witness that Stephen demonstrated. The marks that can only come from God himself. May we be marked with power that can only be explained by God. May we be marked by words that can only come from God himself. And may we remember All of this can only come from Christ in us, not from ourselves. May it be true of us that like Stephen, the best thing about us is not about us at all. It's Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of Stephen Because the example of Stephen is not the example of a great man that we should try to imitate and also be great. Or the example of Stephen is someone who's dependent on you in the way that we should be dependent on you. Lord, Stephen is in the Bible because Stephen had nothing in himself that was noteworthy. Stephen's in the Bible because you were in him. And Lord, I pray that it would be true of us as well. That what we would depend on is not ourselves, not our efforts, not our works, not our ability, not our wisdom. That we would depend not on our things, our objects, our customs, our traditions. But Lord, that we would depend only on you. Lord, I pray that would be true of us. That we would stop leaning on our own understanding and that we would trust in you. Lord, that that we would have confidence in letting go of all of the failed, weak things that we cling to. And we would have confidence by only standing on your truth. That we would have confidence only through your power at work within us. I, I pray that the words that come out of our mouths would be words that come from your pages. Because, Lord, those words came from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked by things that can't be explained except for the fact that you are with us. Lord, in 2021, may it be that we are seen not for who we are, but seen for who you are at work in us and through us. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.